Well, this is the work of the living Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you this afternoon, how do you respond to Jesus Christ? How do you personally respond to Jesus Christ? You say, I believe in Christ, okay? You know, Jesus said, you remember back in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Christ is not your Lord unless you respond to Him, unless you do what He says, unless you follow His teaching. And Christ inspired the entire Word of God, all of it, and we're to respond to all of it. So we want to have this thought in our mind. This is frankly a vital key to salvation, not just to believe in Christ, but to do what Christ said and have the attitude of responsiveness, responsive to Jesus Christ, responsiveness to His law, responsiveness to His leadership, responsiveness to His government, which is so important because that's what we're being trained for, isn't it? We're training right now, as I've told you over and over, and all of us have told you, to be kings and priests. That's why we're here. We're called primarily at this time, God could have called us in tomorrow's world. But as Mr. Armstrong used to explain, we're called primarily today for two reasons. One, to help get out the message to the whole world as part of the team that Christ will use. And secondly, to prepare us individually and collectively to the extent we can work together as a team to be the kings and priests that Christ will use in a few years to teach the whole world you see, and be that team of individuals that Christ will use in tomorrow's world and the government of God, the kingdom of God that's going to rule the whole world very soon. Turn with me, if you would, back to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, we'll go right back to the beginning because John goes even back before the book of Genesis when you understand it. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning... And I've often explained, I think it's good to explain, we have new people coming with us all the time. And welcome to any guests that are here, by the way. We're certainly glad to meet you afterward. But if we have any new people, you know, the Protestant world, or some of them, not most of them, but some of them say, oh, that means 6,000 years ago. No, it does not. You can't find that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say 6,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not there. God may have created the heavens and the earth as the scientists used to say, two billion years ago, and then some said four and a half, then they got up to 12, and then 18 or 24, and they toss around billions of years like ping pong balls because they do not know. They have different ways of figuring it, but it was way back then somewhere. We won't argue on that. They don't know, though, and we don't know either. But in the beginning, perhaps billions of years ago, was the word, and perhaps in that case, trillions of years ago, however you figure time, before the sun was, you know, revolving and the earth revolving around the sun and so forth, you figure time a different way, perhaps. But in the beginning was the word, and the Greek word means spokesman, a revelatory principle. And the logos, L-O-G-O-S, the spokesman was with God, obviously God the Father, as we know it today, and the word was God, that second personality in the family or the kingdom of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And as it says in verse 11, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. And as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. His name means His teaching, His character, His authority, everything about Him. That's what the word name really means in the Greek language. So Christ is being spoken of here. He was in the beginning. 
All things were made through Christ, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So we do need to understand that going back to the beginning, and of course that was, as I say, perhaps billions of years ago, we don't know the exact number of years, we find how God separated the darkness from the light, and He created, of course, the expanse above the waters, brought up the dry land, and put then the plant life, the animal life. And finally, in verse 26, God said, Let us, again, more than one, plural, God the Father and the Logos, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion. And then he says that a little bit later, describes how men and women, male and female, are both created in the image of God and given dominion. And most of you know, dominion, of course, means authority. It means rule. It means government. Dominion. From the beginning, man was to have dominion. Mankind to learn how to rule, how to control, because God put us here at the very beginning and created us in His image, giving us the kind of mind that can come to know what is good and what is evil and the capacity to resist the evil and to choose the good, if we will do that. And learn to resist what's wrong. And learn to resist Satan. And learn to resist the world and the attitudes of the world. Going our own way. Just having fun. Wasting time. Doing crazy stuff. Immoral stuff. And going against, of course, Satan the devil himself. Choosing to obey God and giving our lives to God, our Creator, in an active way. We're given dominion because ultimately, of course, we're supposed to be given great dominion in the kingdom or the family of God, and that's why we're here. And so we have the opportunity to serve God. Each of us learns to surrender to God in our personal lives. And, of course, that involves surrendering to God's government, to God's kingdom now. And that's what we ought to be learning to do because God is watching us. Will we do that? One reason He's especially watching us is described, of course, in um, Isaiah chapter 14, something you're familiar with. But let's turn there briefly. Isaiah chapter 14, if you would, this famous example. Here in Isaiah 14 and verse 12, God says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Luce, L-U-S in the Spanish, Greek means light. So it's light bringer or shining star of the dawn, this word literally meant. Son of the morning, you're cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. So at the very beginning, we had a great, awesome, gorgeous personality, as he's described here. And of course, in Ezekiel 28, most of you know that. I'm not turning there, but put in your notes if you wish to. Ezekiel chapter 28 describes how he was in the Garden of Eden. He was in the beginning. Very beautiful, very powerful, no doubt very charismatic in his personality. A great, powerful, beautiful spirit being with great influence. Because later, as we know, he took apparently his entire third of the angels. God created three cherubim, super archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And later in the book of Revelation, as you know, chapter 12, it tells us how Lucifer took one third of them. So apparently nearly all or all of his entire third rebelled. That's kind of scary. He got everybody and rebellion against God and the ones he was working with. He's very clever. And you read Revelation chapter 20. And you remember after the millennium, 
after an entire thousand years under the rule of Jesus Christ and all of us, if we're there and if we make it, what happens? Lucifer, Satan is let out of the bottomless pit very briefly, apparently for a few months or years, it doesn't say. And he quickly rallies hundreds of millions of people, vast armies coming down to destroy the holy city. And they come down there and God sends down fire from heaven to destroy them. He has to teach the nations and perhaps even the rebellious angels indirectly one last lesson. And because they've done that, how quickly they turn aside after a thousand years. God used a man named Herbert W. Armstrong to restore most of the truths of the church. He didn't claim restore it all, but the vast number of truths were restored, no doubt, through him. The more than we'd known of or able to read of for the last several hundred years and use him to guide the church and teach the church God's way and God's government, everything about it, in a wonderful way. And then he had this terrible sickness and heart attack in 1977, was kind of out of commission. And during the last few years before that, he began to travel some and was getting older and, and uh, not able to hear and see well. And younger men under him beginning to turn things away. And, of course, the whole church began to go downhill. The income began to go down. We had to go off station, sell properties all around the college. Everything began to go wrong under these men who turned away. Finally, after he came back from his heart attack and recuperated, as he said, he put the church back on the track. That is, he tried to very sincerely. And many of the brethren in the church did respond sincerely. Others just went along but the old rot was still there. The old spiritual cancer was still there in their heart. So then he died a few years after that. And then they went right back the other way again to the very way he described was Satan's way and began to take the church right back down the sewer pipe once again. And now that church is not a part of the church of God at all. I think you all know that. We do not regard our former association as any part of the church of God. They have now become a mainstream Protestant church by their own admission. That's what they want. And they do not believe in keeping God's commandments. And I understand by the end of this calendar year, they're not even going to permit services to be held on the Sabbath. They've allowed people to do have some services on the Sabbath and some keep Sunday, but apparently they're going to total Sunday keeping the day of the sun by the end of this calendar year. We'll see how that plays out. But anyway, that's what we heard. But they are not, in our opinion part of the church of God at all. So Satan has done a very thorough job. And Satan came along here and he, God says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'm going to be just as good as God. I'm going to decide what I want to do. I'm going to take over. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I'm going to be just like God. You see, this man, this being, this powerful being, beautiful, terribly intelligent being, got filled with vanity. And so he rebelled against God. He rebelled against the Word, the Logos, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he rebelled against God's government. So he could not be trusted anymore. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, or hell, as I think the King James has it, meaning the grave, of course the lowest depths of the pit. So he was put, of course, in a, in a place of restraint like a grave and put eventually as he was after, or will be soon, in the bottomless pit for a while 
and then into outer darkness. But at any rate, that's what happened. The very first rebellion against God's government is very clearly reported here and in Ezekiel 28. And of course, other scriptures as well, like uh, Revelation 12 and other scriptures touch on that. The book of Jude and Second Peter and so on. So that's what happened. He decided to do his own thing. Remember the old song by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. <laughs> I did it my way. I did it my way. Isn't that wonderful? No, that's not wonderful. That's exactly what Satan did. And God does not want us to do it our way. And we've got to deeply understand that. We're going to have to learn to do things God's way. So this is a basic lesson of the wrong approach. Getting filled with self, deciding to do things your way. Self-will and rebellion against our Creator and against the government of God. Turning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, if you turn there, brethren, in your New Testament. And of course, this, as you know, is right in the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. Matthew chapter 7, we read here, starting, we'll start here in verse 13, no, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Many outside teachers are out there trying to deceive people, and some then creep into the church. Some ministers are in the church who are fine for a while, and then they become ravenous wolves, frankly. Many did that back during the uh, 1970s. And I could start naming a whole bunch of them that some of you older brethren would be familiar with. They became ravenous wolves because they began to try to take over, to try to kick Mr. Armstrong out, to try to destroy God's government, God's way of life in the church. So it doesn't mean they were always ravenous wolves, but come become like that. We had one very charismatic man. Well, actually, two were very charismatic, but uh, the leading man over in Britain for a while was very charismatic, and also his assistant, extremely emotional and charismatic. It took a lot of people out. They'd been faithful for years. They used to worry me, though, because Mr. Armstrong would say, you know, one inch, and they'd say three inches. <laughs> in other words, they always tried to be a little stricter than Mr. Armstrong, thinking they'd make points that way. And then later they felt guilty, not because he told them to do that. He didn't tell them to do that. I didn't tell them to do that. They began to realize how wrong that was. Then they went way back the other way into this charismatic movement and went the extreme opposite direction. And that was their fault. That was not Mr. Armstrong's fault or the church's fault at all. But they became ravenous wolves and tried to destroy God's work in England and take it over and get a following for themselves. Well, it did not work out at all. And now one of them, eventually, of course, well, both of them had to be put out of the church of God to be marked. And then one of them got back in some kind of financial dealings and got himself put in the, either the federal penitentiary, the state penitentiary for financial uh, crimes and spent time in jail and then got out and, uh, and so on. And now he's back in the ministry. <laughs> Not our ministry, though, but now he's back in the so-called ministry. So it's interesting. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Think about the result of what people have taught over a period of time or what they begin to teach. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Brethren, to the extent as one who's been in God's work, not converted at that time, but almost 56 years now since I first came to Ambassador College. I have a rather long record I can look back on. 
And in that 56 years, I noticed very definitely, and I could tell you example after example, maybe hundreds of examples if I had time, to the extent that the work or the church or any local individual followed God's way of life and God's commandments and what they were taught, they were blessed. God's way works. God's law is good. To the extent they did not follow that way, they would have troubles. They didn't all get zapped or swallowed up like Korah. Of course, God doesn't open up the, up the earth and swallow everyone up. That was an unusual thing just to show his attitude toward that kind of rebellion. But he does allow all of us to make mistakes. But to the extent people don't follow that way, the fruits, the result in their lives are bad. I remember coming back from Britain in 1975 and had been over there two and a half years and was and not totally shocked because I had been back a couple of times, but somewhat shocked and surprised that these various people that I knew very well were getting divorced. Divorced, divorced, divorced. I thought, what's going on? And I may have told you that a couple of weeks ago on my sermon on marriage. But the fruits were there. Why? Because of what Mr. Armstrong taught? No. That was while he was going and while he was gone and that stuff started and that's why he then had to put the church back on the track and kick out those men who were causing that very thing to happen. You will know them by their fruits. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree, bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit or bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, this whole worldly system that calls, God calls Babylon the Great, the whole political system, the religious system, the educational system that God has allowed man to build for the last 6,000 years under the influence of Satan the devil is going to be destroyed by fire, literally. Finally, God will simply burn the whole crust of the earth. But in the meantime, there'll be a lot of fire from atomic and hydrogen bombs and all kinds of other things that are essentially destroying it. The lesson is there. Therefore, by their fruits, their results, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Lots of people say, oh, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. But do they? He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The Apostle John wrote, 1 John 2, 4, and so on. So not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the government of heaven, the government of God, the government controlled from God's throne, which is in heaven. But he who does the will, that's the key, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, not a few, he's not talking about a few oddballs off here in the cave somewhere. The vast majority of so-called followers of Christ preachers and teachers and writers and Sunday school teachers and all kinds of other professing Christians, many will say, Lord, Lord, they know about Christ, they talk about Him. So they'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied or preached or taught in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, the demons of ignorance and superstition, they often say, and done many wonders. As I've said, they'll build homes for the drunkards, homes for the unwed mothers. Well, that's not necessarily bad, but if they'd been teaching God's law, God's way of life, when they had control of the whole society, there wouldn't need to be all these rehab places for the drunkards and the dope addicts, and they wouldn't need to be all these places for the unwed mothers. And now they don't have so many unwed mothers, they just murder the little babies. About 45 million of them murdered through abortion. 
you see, trying to cover up their sin. Or, well, well, there is their sin, and since they're murdering, that is sin. Most of the abortions are not some young woman that gets caught, by the way. Most of them are from married women who are simply selfish and don't want to bear the responsibility of having their child. And so they murder the child instead. The statistics are very clear on that. But they'll say, we've done many wonders in your name. Rather than attack the cause which is breaking God's law, you see, then they wouldn't need the home for unwed mothers, then they wouldn't need the rehab for the drunks and the dope addicts and so forth. Rather than teaching that way of life, they do all these things to cause, treat the cure, or the result, I mean, but they don't treat the cause. There's an effect for every cause. And so Jesus says, then I will declare to them, obviously when he comes back, I never knew you. I've never been acquainted with you guys. You never taught my, my law. You never taught my way of life. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness, as it is. Anamos in the original Greek. Virtually all the Greek texts have that. The New King James has it correctly here. I'm reading from the New King James. Lawlessness. Breaking God's law. I did it my way. Remember Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. Doesn't seem bad, it seems right. But the end thereof is the ways of death. So you've got to understand that. Man thinks he's doing okay. He invents all these excuses as to why it's okay to smoke marijuana, why it's all right to drink too much, why it's all right to abort your child, why it's all right to divorce for any and every reason, why it's all right to have a same-sex marriage, why it's all right to do all these abominable things in God's sight, things that are abominable. They have all their accuses, but God said it is the way that leads to death. And that's eternal death, of course, in the lake of fire, as God's Word, God's Word makes very, very clear. That's the result of doing it my way, your way, the human way. In 1 Samuel 15 if you turn back there, 1 Samuel 15, here you find a very important basic example. Again, many of you are familiar with this, about people doing those things contrary to God's law, and in this case, contrary to God's teaching. It's instruction through His human servants. Here it says in chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, Now who was this guy, Samuel? I want to ask that question so you can understand. Did God bring fire down from heaven uh, through Samuel? No. Did God bring, uh, cause him to part the Red Sea like Moses? Did God do all these things through Samuel? No. No. He showed in the book that people came to realize because of the power of this man's preaching and teaching and his character that he was a servant of God. But you don't find Samuel performing very many great powerful miracles to show they just simply recognized by the fruits, that this was a true servant of God. I'm digressing on that so you understand. Some of you, uh, I don't want, because God won't bless me if I do this at all. I don't want to toot my own horn in a wrong way because I'm very human. But brethren, Mr. Ames and, and Mr. Bryce and me and Mr. Pardon and some of us older guys in the work here, and Mr. Crockett, I could add, he's nowhere among us here in, in uh, Charlotte, but have been in the church a long time. And as you know, I'm the only one left of the original five evangelists Mr. Armstrong ordained. And Mr. Armstrong never accused me of teaching false doctrines. 
And no one else did either that I know of except those who have completely departed from the truth. They've never accused me of being a drunkard or an adulterer or anything else, even though many people have known me for over 40 years or 50 years or whatever. And so I've taught the truth and gone that. And because God guided circumstances, so I was able as a human instrument, you say very weak human instrument. That's right. A very weak human instrument, nevertheless, to raise up the global church of God and now the living church of God. Well, I'm in a similar office to this. Not as great as Samuel at all. I don't mean that. But I'm in a similar office. And others have gone and done this and that, but they don't have that background in God's work at all. And the fruits show that. But we're here now doing this work. And so if you prove that this is the church that God is primarily using, He's using others to do bits and pieces to do His work, then you can understand. God doesn't cause every one of us to bring fire down from heaven to show, you know, who we are. He doesn't cause every minister to open the Red Sea to prove who we are. He didn't do that with Samuel. He didn't do that with a number of his leading ministers. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was a minister, a prophet, as great as any prophet who had ever lived. He said, no prophet has ever risen greater than John the Baptist. But he did no sign. Read that in the New Testament. No miracle, no healing, nothing, zero. God simply showed by the force of the man's character, the force of his preaching that he was a great prophet, John the Baptist. Anyway, this was Samuel, and they saw he was God's servant at that time. And he said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Of course, Saul could have said, How do you have the right to do this? Well, he knew that this was the man God had guided and used. And so he accepted that, of course. Thus says the eternal of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up in, uh, from Egypt. Frankly, the Israelis feel, many of their historians and scholars feel, that a great number of the Iraqis and the Palestinians are directly from Amalek. And I agree with them. I won't go into that. But that the fruits and other indications show indicate that very strongly. There's a certain type of antagonism and a willingness to destroy, destroy there, and a, a violent nature beyond most people on the earth. We're seeing that every day if you read the paper, blowing up our people, blowing up even innocent people, destroying and murdering a whole bunch of innocent children the other day. They don't care. They just kill them, kill them, kill them. But that's another matter. God said, wipe those people out at that time. Amalek. That was the command of the one who gives life. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Man, woman, child, even their animals. So Saul gathered the people together. But did he do that? No. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, that is their king, and the best of the sheep and oxen. Oh, they begin to water down what God said. You say, well, God didn't say that from the top of Mount Sinai. No, He didn't. But He did say it through His human servant. Made it very clear. And Samuel knew, I mean, Saul knew that that's what he ought to have done. So then later they had this out, Saul and Samuel. I don't have time to read it all, but Samuel began to rebuke Saul after Saul made excuses. Verse 17, Samuel said, so when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Eternal anoint you king over Israel? Now the Eternal sent you on a mission. Go and destroy Amalek and so on. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Eternal your God? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Eternal? And of course, what normally happens? We've had some people in God's church do that. 
down through the recent last several decades when Mr. Armstrong had to deal with someone who had been directly rebellious or causing division. They'd say, well, it wasn't exactly like this, blah, 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 and they'd do their dance. We've had someone recently do that. they do their little verbal dance. Well, it wasn't this way, it wasn't this way, it wasn't this way. You know, we're used to that. They'll do their little verbal, well, it wasn't exactly like that, they'll say. But so Saul said, I have obeyed the voice and so on. But he says, verse 23, the people, oh, Adam said, the woman. <laughs> he tried to blame it all on Eve. And here uh, Samuel tried to blame it on the people. Well, of course, the people wanted that. But Saul was king. And in those days, the king's word was life or death, as you know. And if he'd said, don't touch it, the people would not have touched it. And God knew that. And Saul knew that too, very well. But Saul was doing his little dance to get out of his responsibility. He was the one who encouraged and allowed this thing to happen under his watch. That was done under his watch. When someone undermines God's church today, a minister or leader in some department or wherever it may be, that's on their watch. They should know better than that. And they are responsible before that, before God. But the people took the plunder, sheep, oxen, and best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the eternal. Then Samuel said... And God caused this, of course, this profound statement to be right in His Word here. Has the ever-living one as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the eternal? Does God want more animals killed? No, He wants people to learn to obey and do what He says. He wants people to obey and follow the human leadership if they're shown by the fruits to be His leadership to follow that leadership unless that leadership utterly turns aside, turns away from God, disobeys God's law, teaches disobedience, and completely apostatizes. That's why, brethren, as I told you before, not bragging because I didn't do it perfectly at all, but that's why I begin to fast not once a month but twice a month for six or eight or nine months, whatever it was, before I finally started the global church of God. I was begging God, please make it clear, Father, what to do. I've always taught unity. I've taught loyalty to Mr. Armstrong. I let Mr. Armstrong, you know, send me here and send me there, and it wasn't always fun stuff. One time my wife was crying, and Elizabeth was crying, and, uh, and we were being set off into exile, and we knew that way back in 1973, I guess, when she was just a young woman. And we were told that by someone involved directly, well, by two different people, as a matter of fact. And so we know it was not necessarily out of love this was being done but Mr. Armstrong allowed it to be done because he was partly misled himself I'm not blaming him and never have anyway and never have of course got bitter against him at any time as my wife and children can tell you I've never done that don't tend to either because he was God's servant and if I make a few mistakes as I get older maybe some of you can give me a little slack I remember some of the board, as they were called, and, and Global was accusing me of saying something exact, not exactly right or stretching something or something which I didn't do in some evil way. But I remember our, the voice of our program member, World Ahead and Now Tomorrow's World, Kevin Lee, uh, you know, the guy with the voice that does the commercials for us, great big guy. Some of you have seen him. He's about six foot two and 250 pounds, and he's not totally all muscle, but he's a pretty big guy. I wouldn't want to wrestle him in a dark alley somewhere, I'll tell you that. And, and he said, uh, uh, Mr. Meredith, he said, uh, in fact, he and another guy wanted to fly out there right then to help back me up. 
And they thought these guys were going to beat me up. And in one of these meetings, I remember Mr. Pyle and uh, Mario Hernandez sat in chairs right outside the council room. Uh, if they thought there's anything going on bad against me, they were going to rush in there and protect me. And I appreciate that. I didn't ask him to do that. It was kind of amusing. And these guys were going to come out, Kevin. And I said, no, Kevin, it's not that kind of thing. They're not going to beat me up, and I'm not worried about that anyway. But at any rate, uh, it's a spiritual warfare we're having here. But he said, Mr. Meredith, they wouldn't cut you any slack. That's the term he used. You know, you've got to give a guy a chance to be human once in a while, not to read people, but obviously you can say something a little bit different or a little, you know. They don't cut you any slack. And, of course, that is often the case here. But at any rate, these people were directly going against what God said. And so he said, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now what happened to those who were guilty of witchcraft in ancient times? They were burned. God told them to either stone them, I think, on one occasion, and burn them. It was a horrible thing. You're directly worshiping a false god. That is the way God equated that kind of rebellion against His servant when you're directly told one thing and do another. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the eternal, he has also rejected you from being king. And brethren, do you want God to reject you from being a king in his coming government? Not just you in this room, but you brethren around the world who may hear this later. Think about it. I don't want that. That's why when Mr. Armstrong sent my wife and me to England in 1956, and I was happy in Pasadena, and there wasn't anything going on over in England, frankly. We had four people. Four, on average, attending the London church. I had a little church I'd raised up years earlier down in San Diego. I was pastoring with about 35 or 50 people at that time. It got much bigger later, about 700. But it was a lot more than four. And I had a freshman class that was 30 or 50 people and all kinds of other things in Pasadena. I didn't need to leave Pasadena. He just said, Rod, I've already announced that London's going to be the international headquarters and, and so on. I just want you and, and Margie to go over there and help rescue that. It's going down to nothing, and we've got to have someone get it going. Well, I didn't, you know, leap and rejoice as such. I knew I was leaving a lot of things and my family and all my friends in Pasadena and our home and all that. But I said, yes, sir, and we went. And my wife was already pregnant. And going across the sea... About a third of the way out, we were on, uh, well, I can't remember. I think we were on the Queen Elizabeth, but anyway, whichever boat we were on on that trip, I know Dick Armstrong and I went on the Queen Elizabeth. It was one of these big ships, but about a third of the way out, you hit a trough, and that's when it gets rough. You go for a while, and then this, head, this deep, and somehow the waves start coming, you know, jerking the ship back and forth, and it gets pretty rocky at that point. And I got sick as a dog, and, of course, all this trip, I would know it was going to be hard on my wife who was pregnant. And uh, I, I remember we walking down to the, they had the dining room down below. I guess it's good that the upper decks, you know, rock more because they're up higher. So they put the dining room down below. And we went down to the dining room and a couple times, maybe three or four times. And what happened more than once, just halfway down, they'd put a, a restroom right near the, right on the stairs or, or on the floor in between to one side, whatever. I had to run in there and, and throw up. 
And Margie was fine. She made it better than I did. <laughs> and Elizabeth is fine. She's here. Didn't hurt her. She was the one Elizabeth was, Margie was carrying. So she survived. I didn't survive, but they did. No, I survived, as you know. But anyway, it worked out, and God protected us and brought us safely to England. And we had some good experiences, and it worked out well. And I learned some lessons by being there, and I've never regretted that. And then later, we came back and uh, bought a, uh, a beautiful little home, about 1,300 square feet, a very tiny little home, but it was on top of a little hill over a fire station and uh, over in La Cunada, which wasn't near as expensive then as it is now, by the way. <laughs> there was any different at that time than Pasadena, such as far as prices. And so we were so happy in our little home and here comes Mr. Armstrong again after about two and a half or three years saying, well, we want to send you back to England. Oh, no. <laughs> so we had to sell our home, and uh, which we did. And uh, I think we took a loss on it, but we certainly didn't make any money because the home's values weren't going up back then like they are today. And uh, go off and leave our home and uh, go off. By then, Michael was born. And by then, she was pregnant with my next older son, Jimmy. And so, again, she, he was sending me and my pregnant wife. He said, you can't keep sending my pregnant wife. Oh, no, I thought, this is God's work. It will work out okay. And it did. It worked out just fine. And then he had me stay there after 12 weeks of evangelistic campaigns and teaching the college in Brickett Wood, helping get it started for the first semester, and then brought me back. And I didn't know I was going to do that because uh, uh, back about early November, soon after the feast, I remember him saying, well, uh, Rod, I think I'll keep you here and have you be the deputy chancellor of the college over here, and, uh, and, and that may be the best thing at this time, but I'm not sure if I should do that or have Raymond stay here, and he would be, and you would come back there. And what do you think? Well, he normally didn't ask me what I thought. He would just tell me what to do, and I would do it, but this time he really did. He said, what would you rather do, and what do you think would be the best? Well, frankly, I, I'm not without an opinion normally, as you know. I'm not bashful either, but I honestly wasn't sure. I was trying to do what was best, and I said, Mr. Armstrong, and I say this before God in Christ, I said this to him. I said, I really would rather you'd make the decision because you're God's servant, and I'm not sure. He said, well, you'd be a bigger frog in a smaller pond over here, and you'd be a smaller frog in a bigger pond over there, and I just don't know where it's the best thing, Rod, and then a few days later, he and Mrs. Armstrong flew off to Australia, and they had never visited down there. And by then, I think Gerald Waterhouse had raised up the churches, and they went down there to visit. And three or four, five weeks later, he came back over, and he said, I've decided to bring you back to Pasadena. Oh, well, that's fine. Either way, I didn't care. I just felt it was whatever's best. And so they brought us back to Pasadena, and that worked out good in the end. But at any rate, I had to just trust that Christ would guide our lives, whether we were way off 6,000 miles away from Pasadena, a nation that was not our nation with three little children, or come back to Pasadena. And I know many of our other men have had to do that too. I know Mr. Bryce in the field has had to do that again and again and again, go from this church to that church and finally up to Canada, stay up there for years and then back down finally. And then I ask him to go back up again because we had problems. And he went back up again and solved the problems up there uh, uh, when we had, at that point, the uh, living church of God, I guess, was getting going. And that's when he went, went to Canada. His earlier stint up there was 17 years or something like that with the Worldwide Church of God. 
But at any rate, Mr. Ames has been moved around, and Mr. Pardia not so much, but he's had to go overseas many times. But so many of our ministers, I remember older men that I've known in the work, like Burke McNair and other older men, very dedicated men, have had to move 20 or 25 times. And Burke told me how they tended to lose thousands of dollars sometimes in moving here and moving there because I remember he went to Houston and bought this home and they assured him he'd get to stay. And all of a sudden some problem comes at Big Sandy and they moved him up there. In the meantime, the oil market collapsed in Texas. So he lost thousands of dollars on the home he bought in Houston and went up to Big Sandy where he was renting a home, fortunately. But he lost a lot, virtually all of his life savings and even was in debt, wiped out because of the home and he was willing to move wherever they sent him. But it worked out for him. And God guides us and guides our lives. Each of us have had to go through things like that. Not everyone, but many of us in God's work and trust that Christ would guide it. And I hope all of you know that. Christ, brethren, is building a team. Jesus Christ is building right now a team of dedicated human beings conquered by God who are willing to move here, move there, take a different job, be demoted, promoted, transferred, you know, have that attitude. Not my will, but thine be done and really mean it. So if we command them to break God's law, no, they're not going to do it. Mr. Bryce has assured me he's glad to go. Uh, you know, wherever I would want him to go. But he says, I won't, I won't change on God's law. <laughs> I don't expect him to do that. He shouldn't say that. And uh, so on. And I know uh, before he died, we thought of bringing Mr. Gwynn in here, moving him somewhere else and a number of things. And he was saying just, he told me two or three times, he said, wherever you want me to go, I'll be glad to do that. And he meant it too. That's exactly his attitude. And many of our other men down through the years have demonstrated that that they will go wherever they're sent, knowing they trust their trust is in Christ, not in me. You know, I haven't won any beauty contests recently. <laughs> so they're not trusting in me. They're trusting that Christ, but the fruits is guiding this work. And they know that I will get multitude of counsel and pray to God and ask the other leading ministers and ask God's guidance and God will guide it overall. Will we ever make a mistake? Yes, we will probably make some mistakes along the way. We have and we will. But as Mr. Armstrong said a number of times, and I'm sure many of our older brethren like Mr. Davis and, and Mr. Apartheid and others from Pasadena will remember, brethren, he'd say, God has allowed Herbert Armstrong to make hundreds of mistakes, but he has never allowed me to make a tragic mistake that would destroy the work or the church. And that's true. He didn't make hundreds of big mistakes. I don't mean that, but you know, he just, how he was very, uh, he was speaking the superlative, you know, and of course, I make hundreds of mistakes too. Not huge ones, but my wife can tell you I make several mistakes every day, I suppose, and little things I do or don't do, and, and, uh, weaknesses we all have, and other mistakes that are more serious than that. But overall, Christ is going to guide His church. So we must surrender to God and to His rule over our lives. How can God know what you are going to do? How can God know what each one of you and what I'm going to do for eternity in the kingdom of God when God says, well, do this or do that or changes our job around or one of you's made a deacon and, and uh, you know, and you didn't want to be or maybe uh, the other guy was made a deacon and you thought you should have been the next deacon. I can't trust God anymore. Old Joe over here, he's made the deacon. And Joe's made the mistakes. Well, of course Joe has made mistakes. So have you. Did we make a mistake in making Joe a deacon? Well, maybe we did. I don't think that'll destroy the work. (laughs) 
But more, most of the time, we did not. We looked at the fruit, and each individual in the church may not be as qualified to see the big picture as those having to make the decision and being guided by Christ to make that decision. The vast majority of the time, obviously, if they're praying and studying, Christ will guide it. Saul was given, of course, instruction through God's human leader, and so he was removed as God's human leader because he would not follow the instruction he had through a very human leader. So we know to understand those things. In Luke chapter 14, it's a basic thing, again, you're familiar with, but I know you should review this, all of us should, and I need to, all of us do from time to time in our own spiritual lives. Turn to Luke chapter 14. It says here in verse 25, Great multitudes went with Christ. Apparently thousands of people, like He fed the 5,000 and others on different occasions. And He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate, and the Greek word here, as most of you know, is a comparative term. All the scholars agree on it. It doesn't mean hate in the sense of I, I despise you. It means you love less. You love less by comparison. Maybe you better say that. It does not love less his father, mother, wife. You must not even follow your wife if she goes off the wrong way. That's what Adam did. You men must not do that. We must follow the truth and not our wives. And you women must follow the truth and not your husbands too, by the way. But each of us is responsible to before God to follow Him. And not our husband, our wife, our children, Brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also. You've got to love that less. Or he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross. You say, oh, it'll be a real cross if I'm put out as a deacon. It'll be a real cross if I have to move downstairs into a smaller office or something like that. I remember one guy back in Worldwide who had a very high office. And uh, he was kind of... Uh, arrogant in a certain way and rebelling against Mr. Armstrong in a smaller way. Later, he had to be put clear out for something far more serious. But he was put down mainly by one under Mr. Armstrong, uh, not me. But in an office on the third floor, he had a big corner office on the fourth floor, which I did also at that time. And he was given a somewhat smaller office, although a corner office on the third floor. And rather than being over a whole bunch of departments, he was just given one department, which wasn't as important. And he was kept his great, big, beautiful home on South Orange Grove with a big swimming pool, 4,000 square foot home, beautifully uh, manicured and decorated and everything like that. And all these things he had, he says, I can't take this anymore. Wow. If most of you and you brethren out there in the field were living in a home like that, you'd think, wow, I done died and gone to heaven. <laughs> you'd be so happy in that great big home with the swimming pool. But no, he says, I can't take this. Why couldn't he take it? Vanity. Vanity. He was being put down from a larger office to a smaller office as far as the specific office and his job. He had a certain emotion, but he was not being kicked out or sent way off. And as I remember it now, Mrs. Pyle might know who I'm talking of and remember, but as I remember, he wasn't even, I don't think they even cut his salary. Maybe they did, but he still had a big salary and was, I know, doing very, very well. Better than 98% of the church members were doing, I'm sure, that at that point in time. I can't take this anymore, he said. Oh, is that so? 
God tests all of us. When I was put down on a couple of different occasions that I've mentioned, I, my salary was cut in half. It wasn't just cut by a little bit. It was literally chopped right in half. And I had to just say, okay, I'll make it and, you know, sink or swim, God will be with us. And, of course, He was with us each time that things worked out. But at any rate, uh, God tests us. And we have to be willing to go through those tests in a right spirit. So whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Are you willing to go through trials and tests and tests and tests to be in the kingdom and family of God and to live forever? And go through those tests in a right attitude, not griping and moaning every minute of the day. No, but having a right spirit. So likewise, verse 33, whoever be of you who does not forsake all that he has, you know, in your heart, your mind, cannot be my disciple. You can't be. You've got to have that attitude of total surrender to Christ. Christ has bought and paid for me, you must say. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the manure pile. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let you hear, brethren. We have to have that attitude of giving our lives to God unconditionally. Say, well, I'll, I'll give my life to God, but if they don't let me stay in this house or in this job or have this salary or get to be the, mess, the next deacon or the next deaconess or have something, then I'm out of here. Oh, is that so? Well, in that case, maybe you're out of God's kingdom. Because he's working with you. I don't mean to be mean about it. I'm trying to help you and help you brethren around the world. God is testing us. He's watching us. He's working with us. He cannot afford to have a whole bunch of potential demons, a whole bunch of potential Satans in his kingdom who say, if I don't get my way, I'm out of here. If I don't get my way, I'm going to fight the church. You see, if I don't get my way, I'm going to try to overthrow God just like Lucifer did. And then God changed his name. God names things what they are. He changed his name from Lightbringer to Satan, which directly means in the Hebrew, adversary. Adversary, the enemy. So we have to understand the way God looks at it. And uh, he, that is his mind. So we must surrender to God and his rule over our lives in every way and have that attitude always. Back in Philippians chapter 2, if you turn there, Philippians chapter 2, brethren, notice here in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. If I had had selfish ambition in all these cases, I guess I would have wanted to rush out and while I was still young and get a different job and not allow myself to be sent off to some little place. And one time I had to leave a beautiful home as we bought a small home, but 1,300 square feet in La Cunada and go to a little, they call it a rose cottage, uh, about 600 or 700 square feet, about half the size, an old, dirty, cold brick uh, thing all lined up together here, little apartments, and uh, got cold in the winter, and you had coal-burning stoves there, and that's your only heat, no central heating, no air conditioning, and you got cold. But you just had to be there, and that was all right. And, and we were serving God and getting the college started there in Brickhead Wood. I don't remember ever griping about that. I hope I didn't. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't exactly paradise. <laughs> but we were there to start the college. And we got the college started, and God blessed it. 
So try to not avoid the selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And let's realize that others may have a lot better attitude sometimes than we do and really understand that. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I think Mr. John of Winsett is a wonderful example in all of that, constantly thinking of others. And I'm sure he had greater depth of humility than I do, and I really mean that. I mean that sincerely. And I think he had that attitude of just giving and helping and serving that just flowed out. So we don't know why God let him go to sleep. He's certainly better off than we are. Maybe that's one reason, you know. Blessed are the death of the righteous, or however it's worded there, and uh, so on. But we've got to have that attitude. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ, how He emptied Himself, came down to die for us, totally unselfish, totally giving. And so He said then in verse 12, Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not easy. Work it out with fear, deep awe, before the Creator, and trembling. For it is God who works in you both the will and do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Some people murmur. Well, they did me wrong. You know, you've heard the old country western song. She did me wrong and she went off with this other man and I'm so sad, you know, all that stuff. They whine and moan. Whine and moan. We have whiners and moaners in God's church. They done did me wrong. I didn't get exactly what I wanted. Some people have that attitude. Don't do that, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So he said, I'm willing to be offered. He had given his life to God and meant it. But, verse 19 I trust in the Lord Jesus, notice, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may be encouraged when I know your state. Oh, he was going to send Timothy. What if Timothy says, no, I'm going to stay here. You can't send me anywhere. Oh, oh, I'm not going to go anywhere. You're going to send me right here. And if you try to send me away, I'm going to undermine the brethren. I'm going to get them to rebel and turn away. And you can't send me anywhere. You don't find Timothy ever did that. But Timothy was an evangelist. He had outflowing concern, a very powerful servant, but he went wherever Paul sent him. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your estate, for all love or seek their own. You see, most people want what they want, and they want it now, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him he didn't say, we're going to take a vote or something. I'll ask him if he would like to go. He says, I am going to send him to, at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself will come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send. Oh, he's going to send someone else to send to you Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus got sent away also. My brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Of course, in Epaphroditus' case, he was sending him back home, but he was going to send him. It was God's government in action. 
the human leader would tell them to go here and go there, and that's what they would do. They didn't fuss and argue and fret and moan about it. They would just do what God said. Uh, notice back in Luke chapter 10, brethren, Luke, if you would, uh, chapter 10 this time, and I'm going to begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Now remember, brethren, these 70, probably young men, because those are always the kind Jesus sent out. I would take them, not old men, but 70 young men like the disciples. He sent them two and two before His face into every city and place where He Himself was to come. Then He said, The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into His harvest. And boy, do we need to do that today. We need more ministers very much, really sincere, dedicated ministers, capable ministers. Pray that, brethren. It's another important thing. All you brethren around the world to pray for is a regular thing. Pray that God will give us the ministers that we need. And so then he tells them to go out and preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, as you know, and at least that's what they did. And he says in verse 16, He who hears you... Now notice, brethren, these were not apostles. These were just men sent out representing Christ. doesn't even say they were evangelists. Maybe they were acting evangelists at that point, but they weren't even converted, of course, because the Holy Spirit was not yet given. But the Holy Spirit must have been with them, though not yet in them. But Jesus said, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's a powerful verse. If you reject, you fight those. You resent or won't do and follow any spiritual teaching of one that you know is being sent out with authority in God's true church, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble. So what is Christ doing? Christ is working with us. He is testing us. He's watching our attitudes. Are we sensitive to do what He wants? Can He trust us 50 years from now? Can He trust us 50,000 years from now? Can He trust us 50 million years? You see, He has to think in those terms, brethren. Yes, He does. Is He going to trust you and me because He sees that this attitude of ours is becoming ever more fully converted, humble, yielded, for we say sincerely and mean it and follow through with our actions like Jesus Christ did, not my will, but thine be done. That's the attitude he's trying to work with and work with and work with to teach you and me. He has to teach me. He deals with me all the time. He can work with me in so many ways. You say, well, you're the human leader. Well, most of my ministry, I was not. For 40 years in my ministry and 43 years in the church, I was under Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And I had to do what he said and I did do. And I followed through even sometimes when it was painful at the time. I had to learn to put my faith and trust in God, not in him. I loved him. But I didn't trust him fully because he himself told us don't do that. Yes, he did many times. And he gave us this verse and I'm going to turn to it now if you want to. Well, I'll come to just a moment. Uh, let's turn first of all to Psalm 8. I mean Psalm 7. Psalm 7 now, if you would. So uh, this is, I think, the best place to go now before I get on to the next verse here. Psalm chapter 7, the seventh psalm. Where it says in verse 8, The eternal shall judge the people. Christ is coming back as King of kings and He will judge the people. 
Judge me, O Eternal, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me, David said. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God, notice, the righteous God tests. Does he test us? Oh, you better believe it. You are being tested right now, as a matter of fact. Some are saying, well, why is Mr. Meredith preaching this? And does this mean me? And is he exalting himself? And he's using too many things of this or saying, no, God is testing you. Are you going to take this as a lesson under Jesus Christ that he's teaching you through a human instrument? He knows every thought going through your head. He knows every thought going through my head. Will I make a mistake sometimes? Yes, of course. But I tried to help you and I have to use some examples of myself to make the point. I don't know all the examples of everybody else as well. So the ones that I'm familiar with are the ones that flow out more often. The righteous God tests the hearts and minds, my defenses of God who saves the upright in heart. But we'd better be sure that we're upright in heart, not just in our own, uh, our own profession of it, but that God looks on the heart and He knows we're upright. We have a right attitude. We're really trying to do what God says, really trying to learn from Him and from His servants, not just me, but any faithful servant in the church of God. All right, now let's go to Jeremiah, if you would, kind of following through on what Mr. Armstrong said. He said, fellas, to us ministers, I don't remember how many times, but I've heard him say it at least two or three times, maybe five or ten. He says, I've learned that every man I ever work with, every elder, would let me down in one way or another. He says, I've learned you can't put your trust in man. You've got to love man. You've got to be willing to forgive men, but you can't put your trust in men or in me either, he said on some of those occasions. Your trust must be in God, you see, and in Jesus Christ. Now, back in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, here's what God tells us. Thus says the ever-living one, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. If you put your complete trust in man... So many people in the world do that. They think, well, this society and, and is good and, and my old father or my old grandfather or Uncle Ben or Aunt Hannah, they've been such wonderful people in the Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or they can't be wrong. I'll put my trust in them. No, you can't do that. You've got to put your trust in God and if you prove that the Bible is the revelation from God, then you put your trust in God and in the God of the Bible and do what God says. That is your trust. You may have faithful ministers who teach you the truth. And you will have Mr. Parting up occasionally and Mr. Ames and Mr. Bryce and our other ministers here occasionally teaching the truth, Mr. Crockett and others, visiting ministers and others here. And they will teach you the truth. If they don't, we will fuss at them. <laughs> Not just me, but you know, we get on to each other. And if I make a mistake, they usually get me later and say, well, you set up when you went down and, you know, stuff like that. Some of it's just incidental mistakes we didn't mean, but talking too fast or whatever, but we try to watch each other, and that's, that's good. But cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the eternal, for he shall be like a shrub of the desert. What's going to happen to that? What's going to dry up and blow away? No water. And shall not see when the good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and the salt land not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the eternal. That's the key. Your trust, a deep, profound belief, faith, trust. Your trust has got to be in the invisible God 
that you have proved is there because you've seen what He says in His Word. You've come to recognize that all this creation did not just happen, that these overlapping, interlocking laws demanded a lawgiver. The creation demands a creator. The design demands a designer. All those things we've proved, many of us, for many years and decades. You know that. And because perhaps you have tested the Bible prophecies and you've seen these big, major prophecies affecting ancient Babylon, ancient Egypt, the Roman Empire, massive, wonderful prophecies telling how ancient Israel was to become a great nation and company of nations, or Joseph. And we would have the blessings out of the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, as we say in one of our patriotic songs, from sea to shining sea. Yes, we have it, from sea to shining sea. And God has given it to us. And the Bible says that, and this church is the only church that has been preaching that. That is the church of God and those descendants of that church coming down from Mr. Armstrong. Blessed is the man who trusts in that God and whose hope is in the eternal. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out at roots by the river and will not fear when he comes. But its leaf will be green. You see, God will always be with him to provide for his needs and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. Then he goes ahead. Verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Don't trust your own heart, brethren. As it says back in Proverbs, he that leans to his own understanding is, is wrong. I forget how it's worded there, but lean not to your own understanding. If you get some attitude, then always go back and pray. Say, Father, is this really? I'm getting in a bad attitude here. You can usually sense that through God's Spirit. Help me to figure out the right attitude. What's the truth? And begin to you know, study and pray and ask questions, get counsel. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. I didn't put that there. That's been there all the time. Wow, that's quite a statement. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Eternal, search the heart. I test. Yes, God is giving you and me a test. In one sense, every day of our lives. He's watching our attitude. He's watching and monitoring, you know, like a uh, art specialist could see the beeper by the side of the patient's bed, you know, as the heart, reach, heart rate, kind of like that. Do you think God can't do that with our thoughts? Of course He can. He's watching that, you know, selfish, 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 and then it gets back down to more of a normal spiritual heartbeat. Giving and helping and serving. And then selfish, selfish, and it gets down. Hate, vanity, rebellion, when it gets back down. He watches that. He's monitoring you and he's monitoring me because he is God. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways. Do your actions bring forth love and help and helpfulness in other people and service and unity? Or does your, do your actions and your words spread division and resentment and bitterness and rebellion against God and against God's work? I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You're rewarded by how those things come out. So God is walk, watching us and working with, of course, each one of us in that way. And we've got to be sensitive to that. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 1, brethren. In your New Testament, Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And here's one I've often given you, but we've got to get this. He says, speaking of Jesus Christ in verse uh, 12 or verse 22, I mean, 
God, He put all things under His, Christ's feet. God put everything under Christ's feet and gave Him, Christ as the antecedent in the previous verses, as you know, He's talking about on His safe time. I'm not reading the first one of Paul's great long sentences here, about five verses in one sentence. He gave Christ to be the head over all things to the church. Christ is the head over all things to the church. You say, well, maybe you let a mistake over here in California. Maybe they made a mistake over here in Australia. Maybe they made a mistake in the hymnal. Maybe they made a mistake in the summer camp. Maybe they made a mistake in the television. See, no, Christ is the head over all things. Does Christ ever allow His human servants to make little mistakes along the way? Yes, He does. But He's responsible to be sure that they are not crucial mistakes. Bad mistakes that would cripple God's work. And he does do that. He does do that unless he himself is moving it from one era to another. And frankly, I know that, I'll just say who it was because he's not alive now, but I loved him up until he died. I thought I kept thinking and hoping and praying he would come with us, Dr. Herman Hay. I talked to Dr. Hay after these things began to happen and this, this bad guy was put in charge of the worldwide church and none of us understood it. People wondered, who is this guy? How can he be there? Never had any fruits. And Mr. Armstrong somehow was talked into putting him there. And Herman Hayes said, it was God's time for the Laodicean church to begin. Dr. Hay had been our premier, you know, researcher and historian. And he often had very profound understanding, which he did on that occasion. As I've looked back, that was exactly right. It was God's time. And that's what happened from then on. And you know the fruits. Yes, Christ allowed it at that time because there was a reason for it. Had Christ gone asleep? Had Christ gone off and forgot His job? No, it was God's time for that to happen, for that whole thing to be watered down. And now they're not even laid to sin. They've gone far beyond that, of course, as I've said, but it started that attitude, which has now taken over most of God's people. So Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is His body. Or the body through which he works. He doesn't have human hands and feet anymore. When he was here on earth, as Jesus of Nazareth, he had two hands and two feet and two eyes and ears and one mouth. And God spoke through his mouth. And God used his hands to lay hands on people and heal them and bless them. And help them in and out of the big fishing boats. And just encourage people in so many ways with his whole body and mind and voice and personality. All day long he was giving and giving. Now who does that? Who's supposed to do that? <laughs> you and me. We are His body to do that. He's working through us together as a unified team. So we should be a unified team. The church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Christ is the head of the church. Not the dead head, the living head. He's alive at God's right hand, as we've explained so many times. Then he says over in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, he was in Roman prison with a ball and chain soldered between his ankles, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. We're to forgive our little mistakes, if they're little mistakes, but rebellion is a different matter. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's what we ought to work at, to keep that unity, to keep God's church together. If every elder, every leader, every man in the church says, I'm important, I'm important, I can go out here and start some other church. Some could. They could get their, you know, 
computer or their typewriter or whatever try to start some church. Some they would get a few people. Many of them would. Some wouldn't, but many would. Is that what God wants? Well, of course, that's ridiculous. Then the opportunity to get a really big work done and to reach all the people in the world in China and India and all over the United States and Canada and help our brethren is greatly diminished because everyone's so vain they think they've got to do their own thing in their own way and it wrecks the whole opportunity and they are not learning the lessons of submission. They're not learning the lessons of teamwork. They're not learning the lessons of obeying Christ and following where Christ is working and Christ cannot and will not use people in His kingdom who have that as their basic motives. I'm not saying anyone who does something else or other groups are all wrong. I don't mean that, but... Many times people come along who have no training, no background, no reason to do it. They just pop up and so often want to do something. And if that's the way they do, they're going to lose their reward utterly, frankly, in most cases. If that's their attitude, as I say. Because he cannot trust them. How can he trust them if they've done that now and don't repent of it? And so we're to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit. Just as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all, God is to live in us through His Spirit. And that brings unity, not people fighting and competing and saying, here's what I want, and I won't cooperate, and I won't be part of the team, and I'm going to fight and resist and rebel. Verse 11, Christ Himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, you see, to strengthen the saints of God, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Why? Again, till we all come to what? Fighting and fussing and division? No. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. One approach to God, working together to get the message out and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. Men will come along, well, they didn't say it just like that. Well, here's the way I look at it, and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes people are overthrown by that because they don't have all the facts. And if the false prophet is there, or this hurt, this member with hurt feelings, and that's the only one right there, right then. They believe that person. And we can't always come out and say, look, they did all this and this and this and this because then we're opening ourselves up for a lawsuit, frankly, if we accuse people of everything they've done, frankly, in our society, if you follow me. And also, it's not right. We can't go and say, well, uh, Mrs. Jones got upset because she was the next deaconess. But did you know that she cusses? Did you know that she had an affair? Did you know that she drank too much and so on and so forth? We can't tell people that. Or about Mr. Jones. I don't want to pick on Mrs. Jones all the time. (laughs) I just came out. No, we can't tell them all that stuff. We have to get the facts and make the decision. And you brethren have to have a certain confidence, not trust like you would in God, but as you see the fruits, as I've said, of the work being done and the truth being preached, a human confidence that Christ is alive and He's guiding and orchestrating overall the work and the way it's being done. Otherwise, He will kick us out and He is very capable of doing that. Boy, Mr. Wynn's death should have shocked us all. He was 19 years younger than me and I thought, boy, He's going to outlive me and He was one of the three or four men I thought might replace me if I died. And here He's gone. He can't replace me. That shook me. 
He can take my life just like that. He can take your life just like that. And we've got to understand that. In Him we live and move and have our being. We've got to go forward in the fear of God and understand the humility we ought to have in the trust in God, not in human beings. So don't let the trickery of men bother you and the cunning craftiness. Very cunning, very clever. He said, she said, this is the way it was. I think this, in which they lie and wait to deceive. But you, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Grow up to reflect Jesus Christ. Become spiritually mature. And now, brethren, turn, if you would, to First John, near the end of your New Testament here, back just before the book of Jude and Revelation. First John, chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up here near the end, verse 28. He's been telling them to follow the original truth of Jesus Christ, as he said in verse 24. And he says, And now, little children, abide in Him. Brethren, all of us have to have Christ living His life in us. As you know, Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me, Paul said. That's the key. Abide in Him, that when He appears, when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. You know, if we've been walking with Christ, talking with Christ, serving Christ, yielding to Christ's leadership, even though we may not understand every little detail and every swiggle along the road, we've been trying to be loyal, we've been trying to be helpful, we've been trying to be submissive, then they can say, Christ, I made these mistakes, but you know in my heart I've tried to serve you and follow your human leadership. It says, yes, George, yes, Mary, I know that. And I can trust you to be in my kingdom forever. That's the attitude Christ is watching for and wanting in you and in me. So abide in Him that when He appears, when He comes again soon, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him, knowing we've been playing all these little games and we've been watering this down and we've been changing this and that and we've been undermining the leadership He's put in His church. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices as it is here in the New King James, and is correct. Everyone who practices that way of life is begotten or born of Him and should be begotten of Him. So let's know that, brethren, and let's look forward to the coming of Christ so we can lift up our hands and say, Christ, we've tried to be loyal to You, to keep Your law, to keep Your way of life, and to follow the leadership You put in Your church. We've tried to let You fashion and mold us as a team to use to get this message out. And we've not caused division. We've tried to show you we're on your team, that we belong to you. And then he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Inherit the kingdom, because the kingdom is a government. And we're learning to practice right government now to prepare us for rulership and eternal joy and glory and service in the kingdom of God.